my entire village was totally destroyed. And once I realized that it could not remain there, um, advocating for better Sudan, advocating for my family, myself and many others found themselves seeking asylum. You know, your your home is destroyed. You're 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 chased by security agents, and and and, and so you run for your life. This is Mutasim Ali. Mutasim is a Sudanese refugee, one of 35,000 African refugees currently living in Israel, but one of only 13 to have his refugee status recognized by the state. As of December of 2017, all of those other refugees that are not recognized are at risk of deportation. As you're hearing this, Israel has already started sending refugees to countries that offer them no status or security. I'm Asaf Calderon, and welcome to Unsettled. When you think of Israel and refugees, your immediate thoughts probably depend mostly on who you are and where you come from. Israel is a refugee-absorbing country. Many Jews, including my own grandparents, found shelter in Israel after the Holocaust. Many Palestinians, on the other hand, became refugees after they were forced to leave their land in the 1948 war. But today, we are going to talk about Israel's other refugees, those you may not have even known it had. African refugees who came mostly from Sudan and Eritrea, escaping oppressive regimes and persecution. The histories and politics of Eritrea and Sudan are complex, and we won't have time to get into all of them today. But here is what you need to know. Around 2005, an unprecedented number of Eritrean and Sudanese nationals started to arrive in Israel seeking asylum. In other developed countries, Sudanese and Eritrean asylum seekers have a very high rate of recognition as refugees. In Israel, it's a different story. In this episode, you'll hear the terms refugees and asylum seekers used to describe the same group of people. Legally speaking, an asylum seeker is somebody who enters a foreign country seeking official refugee status. This is important because refugee status grants certain rights and protections that, as we will see, the vast majority of African asylum seekers in Israel don't get. I met Mutasim, who you heard from at the beginning, in 2010 when I lived in South Tel Aviv. I was a 19-year-old volunteer in a workers' rights organization when I had my first personal encounter with Israel's African refugee population. Mutasim was a young community organizer who, despite arriving only a year earlier in 2009, already had perfect Hebrew. We organized together for refugee rights in Israel for years, and during that time, Mutasim rose to become the CEO of an aid organization, was put in prison, and eventually received his refugee status. We'll get into all of that, but first, at this point you might be thinking, Israel has no land border with these East African countries, Sudan and Eritrea. Why do these asylum seekers end up in Israel of all places? In Mutasim's case, Israel was his second destination after attempting to find asylum in Egypt. But he soon found out that with Egypt and Sudan's close relationship, he was still at risk. Again, we're labeled as rebellious, posing threats, so Egypt was never been a safe place for many of us. Since Egypt was not safe, Mutasim set out for Israel where he was sure he would find refuge. I asked him why he felt so confidently that his experience in Israel would be different. For two single reasons, I would say. Israel likes any diplomatic relationship with Sudanese, and so if I fear being in Egypt because of that diplomatic relationship and that I would be labeled as a rebellion, this would not be the case with Israel because simply didn't have any diplomatic relationship. And the second reason was um, 
uh, you know, I was also moved by the engagement of Jewish communities around the world, you know, advocating for, for the food and, uh, you know, uh, much, you know, in massive numbers, saved our food organization and synagogues. And that was really moving to see during that period of time. Um, You're saying that you wanted to go to Israel because of uh, the work that Jewish activists around the world have been doing around Darfur? So here's the thing. I could have gone to Libya or any other country, right? Because it's the closest country than, than Israel. One of the main reasons that I thought about Israel, I remember when we were seeing the marches in DC and different uh, parts of the world and people were speaking up to save Darfur and that you were not alone and we would work with you. Um, and that that really hits me because, because we're... Um, confronted by the government with all the equipment, weapons and, and money and everything to kill all the innocent people in Darfur. And the government supported by major governments such as China and Russia, and of course, some of the Arab countries there. And we felt so lonely. And all of a sudden, we hear these voices from Jewish organizations, synagogues, youth movements, advocating and that we experienced this. We experienced one of unspeakable human tragedies. And we cannot let it happen again. So when you came to Israel, what happened to you? Um, the, the minute I crossed the border, I was... Um, you know, I was taken to a, a military base where I was hosted there for a night, but then immediately thereafter, I was taken to prison called Saharanim in the south of Israel. And I spent, you know, four and a half months expecting that I would be processed, right? Like um, I should be given an opportunity um, to, you know, to, to explain my case. So after being for four and a half months in prison, in which your case was not processed, you were eventually released, given a bus ticket, and given what kind of document? It was not even a permit to stay, it was just that I was really from a prison. Mutasim's story is not an isolated incident. So until 2009, the state of Israel didn't have a refugee status determination process. This is Elliot Weisrub-Glassenberg, who advocates for African asylum seekers in Israel. He explained that the country lacks a clear path to getting refugee status for these people. The idea of people, or specifically I should say non-Jews, coming to Israel and seeking asylum or refugee status in Israel was a phenomenon that only really started you know, when the African asylum seekers started coming in the mid to late 2000s. The first 400 Darfuris to arrive in Israel received temporary residency status. The next several thousand who came were given work visas. But then after that, most of the people who arrived were given what's called conditional release visas, which are pretty much saying um, you entered this country illegally, you are supposed to be in prison, uh, and we are supposed to deport you, but um, we cannot currently deport you. So you are being released from prison on the condition that you will cooperate with your deportation as soon as we can deport you. Not only were these African asylum seekers released from prison with precarious standing and without any rights, they were generally sent to one of the poorest parts of Tel Aviv, the central bus station. 
If you've been to Tel Aviv, maybe you've seen it. Maybe you haven't. I was born in Tel Aviv, and it took me 17 years to go there for the first time, even though it's only 15 minutes away from my middle-class neighborhood. The South Tel Aviv neighborhood that surrounds what is now one of the biggest bus stations in the world is called Neve Sha'anan, and it used to be a working-class neighborhood populated by Mizrahi Jews, or Jews that came from Middle Eastern countries, which was turned into Tel Aviv's main transportation hub. With the buses came noise, pollution, and apartment value drops. For decades, Neve Sha'anan has been Tel Aviv's poorest and most underserved neighborhood, with serious social problems such as heroin use, sex trafficking, and homelessness. This is the neighborhood to which African refugees were sent. Tens of thousands of mostly young men, unemployed, many suffering from PTSD. As you might imagine, this exacerbated the social problems that already existed. In the mainstream Israeli discourse, African refugees are pitted against the local residents of South Tel Aviv. There is a small but vocal group of residents that advocates for the deportation of refugees who, in their words, made their lives hell. Years of my advocacy with uh, local communities, I, I just understand how painful it is to be in that situation. The ro- local residents themselves living in a very marginalized neighborhood, they're so poor and the government is neglecting them. And they were quite uh, right about their, uh, their, their justice struggle, that they shouldn't endure that situation themselves. And this is where we share our goals. And we could work together to advocate and ensure basic rights. Mutasim found partners in a significant number of local Israelis who organized together with African refugees for a better South Tel Aviv. To a certain extent, it really worked out and we started working with some of them. Others refused totally because no matter what, we could not accept infiltrators here. At this point, you might be thinking, wow, infiltrators, that's a harsh way to refer to asylum seekers. It's true. It also has a long legal historic context that stems from the state's founding. Here's Elliot again. The anti-infiltration law is a law that was first passed in Israel in the 1950s. Um, The purpose of this law was to make it easy um, for the state of Israel to imprison and deport people who entered Israel irregularly, not through regular border crossing. Now, the dictionary definition of infiltrator, mistanen, is somebody who enters a territory generally with the intention to cause harm. So this law was specifically used because there were a lot of um, what you may call mechablim, terrorists, people who were trying to enter the state of Israel from its bordering countries in the 1950s and do violence against innocent civilians. I think some of the people that were regarded as mistanim even back then were people who wanted to come back to their villages. Yes, there were um, Arabs who were coming back to the place where they lived before the 1948 war and they were referred to as infiltrators. Like, what was the harm they were planning on doing? Well, they were causing harm to the Jewish demographic character of the state of Israel. In fact, according to Israeli historian Benny Morris, the vast majority of Palestinian so-called infiltrators, or mistanenim in Hebrew, crossed the border for reasons that have nothing to do with terrorism or warfare. People crossed the border to resettle in their villages, to collect crops from their fields, and even just to visit family and friends. The original anti-infiltration law deliberately conflated these peacefully motivated actions with the far less frequent acts of terrorism. This law was hardly used then for like, you know, 50, 60, 70 odd years until the mid 2000s when people started coming in again, you know, across the border um, from Egypt, from uh, Sudan. And um, the government of Israel tried to use this law 
against them, to quickly imprison them or send them back, or even send them back without imprisonment, what right, they called the hachzalot chamot, hot returns. And fairly quickly, the Supreme Court intervened and said, this law does not apply to these people. Where these people are seeking asylum in your country, you have to give them the chance to seek asylum. You can't just send them back. They are not infiltrators. They are asylum seekers, right? So that's what the Supreme Court said. But the government of Israel got very creative, especially around uh, the year 2012, and changed the law to pretty much broadly de define anyone who entered Israel irregularly, not through a regular border crossing, to make it easy to imprison them indefinitely. And they started creating laws to make the lives miserable of these asylum seekers. This phrase, make their lives miserable, you're going to hear it a few times in this episode. These are the exact words in which former Minister of Interior Eli Ishai described the goal of these policies. He's on record saying, until I can deport them, I'll lock them up to make their lives miserable. In 2013, the newest version of the anti-infiltration law set to motion the imprisonment of thousands of refugees in a newly built facility called Cholot. This sparked the largest refugee demonstration Israel had ever seen, led by community leaders including Mutasim. Despite the protest movement, in 2014 the new facility was opened. At this point, Mutasim had been in Israel for five years. He was an established leader in the Sudanese community and had just started serving as the CEO of the advocacy and aid organization, the African Refugee Development Center. However, like so many other asylum seekers, he was sent to Cholot facility. Israeli lawmakers justified sending asylum seekers to Cholot because technically it's not a prison, but a so-called open facility. So they say it's an open facility because you can go out for, for an hour, two hours, and then come back to the same place. Nothing else. And I have to say that I have been to Saharanian prison. It's not really different. It's not really different for me. Where should I go for, a, for an hour? Like, it's in the middle of nowhere. You know, the place itself is one of the hottest places in summer and the coldest place in winter. And so there's no way that you can go anywhere. So all you have to do is to remain in your rooms. So it's basically a prison. Yep. It's, it, it's, it's just a prison. Like, I've got no any definition for that detention facility. It's just a prison, as simple as that. While in Cholot prison, Mutasim appealed to the court, claiming he should be released until his refugee claim was processed. Mutasim and his lawyers had hoped his case would set a precedent. They argued that refugees with asylum claims should have the chance to get an official answer about whether or not their asylum request is recognized before the state can imprison them. If the court applied this logic to Mutasim, it would have to apply to everyone with an open asylum request. But instead of opening the path for the majority, Mutasim became part of a small minority of African asylum seekers in Israel to be given an official refugee status. And it was really nice to hear the decision, although I, I really didn't expect that I would be given the status in Israel. And so it gave me two impressions. One, I felt sad because I was the only one given refugee status. But number two, it was also, you know, maybe we'll open a gate for many others uh, to be recognized. And, and unfortunately, the second thing didn't happen. Mutasim became one of just 13 African refugees recognized by Israel. Compare that with the acceptance rates of between 65 and 95% for Eritreans and Sudanese asylum seekers in other countries. Israel rejects the vast majority of asylum seekers. And not only that, 
but many people don't even have an open asylum request, even if they think they do. A lot of people think they did submit asylum requests. Well, actually, first of all, there are thousands of people who did submit asylum requests to the United Nations. And those asylum requests were handed over to the Israeli government, and the Israeli government threw those in the trash bin and said, all oh, those people need to apply again. Well, they said that quietly. They didn't make a big announcement. So a lot of people thought they applied for asylum and didn't realize. People, when they entered the country, did all kinds of interviews and filled all kinds of paperwork when they entered Israel, when they were in prison, they thought they applied for asylum, right? I have uh, friends who have told me they applied for asylum or they filled out the paperwork, they handed it in, but they never got a stamp proving that they did. And when uh, inquiries were made, they were told they never applied for asylum. I actually went with a friend of mine to the office where you apply for asylum to hand in his paper. And we had to wait, I think, for an hour. And I refused to leave together with my friend until we received a stamp that he had submitted his asylum request. Also, people were inhibited from entering the building. People were told not to apply. People were worried that if they were applied for asylum that that information would be leaked to the Eritrean government and they would be in trouble with the Eritrean government. So there are so many different reasons. For the last uh, 12 months, it's been almost physically impossible for black people to enter the Ministry of Interior offices where you apply for asylum. There are people line up for hours and wait for days to get in and um, we have some video testimony that shows a lot in like a dozen people a day, most of them white. You can't deport someone for not applying for asylum if you physically have prevented them from doing so. So in fact, many of Israel's asylum seekers don't actually have an open asylum request. This is important because in December, Israel passed new legislation that allows it to forcibly deport all refugees without an open asylum request. So on one hand, this new policy is a continuation or a, um, a worsening of the previous policy of make people's lives miserable so that they leave. On the other hand, it's really a whole other level because now we're talking about coerce. They're using the language of deportation before they were not using the language. They're using the language of voluntary departure, encouraged departure, imprisonment to encourage departure. Now they're talking about deportation. So what the policy actually is, is it says if um, any uh, infiltrator, right, which is any person who entered the country non-regularly, so Eritreans or Sudanese, who do not have open and pending asylum requests, you have 90 days to leave the country, or you will face indefinite imprisonment in Israel until you leave the country. I think it's important to say that technically under international law, if someone is not a refugee and does not qualify for other humanitarian protection, it is in, within the realm of international law that they can be deported either to their country of origin or to another safe country. So what Israel is saying is, oh, we've dotted our I's and we've crossed our T's, right? We're not deporting refugees. We're not deporting asylum seekers, people who have open and pending asylum claims. We're deporting people who have been rejected from the asylum process and people who didn't submit the written claim, the written request for asylum. This is immensely problematic. Well, those who get an answer, 99.9% .9 are rejected, right? So I think those rejections cannot be seen as valid. And I think we need to fix the problems in Israel's asylum system before we deport the people who were rejected by it. So where do people go? So Israel has given people a few options. Uh, so one is return to your country of origin. So actually thousands of people have been returned directly by Israel to North Sudan, to Sudan, and to Eritrea. By the way, this violates a basic principle that's called non-refoulement. 
in refugee law, returning people to the place of their persecution. Those people saying, oh, it's voluntary, it's voluntary, but this is definitely done under duress. Eritrea, first of all, we have almost no idea what happens to people there. It's very different to, they're very difficult to know. Um, Sudan, we have evidence of people who um, were killed uh, or died in the custody of the Sudanese authorities, quote unquote, um, within a day or two of arrival in Sudan. Um, we know of others that have um, returned to Sudan and were interrogated and tortured by the authorities and then released and they were followed by the authorities and they were targeted or the authorities have tried to use them as spies. And then Israel has opened up uh, other pathways. Israel announced it has uh, secret agreements with two secret countries in Africa, uh, which we know to be Uganda and Rwanda, that are willing to accept migrants from Israel in exchange for some kind of deal. And there are rumors that there is money involved, there's weapons involved. All of the evidence that has been collected by any source outside of the Israeli government, um, journalists, um, NGOs, academics, have gone and gone to Uganda, gone to Rwanda, tried to find these people, gone to South Sudan, right? Interviewed people who made it to Europe, right? Again and again, the story is the same. People are trafficked almost immediately within a few days. They arrive in Rwanda or they arrive in Uganda, um, they're met before they go through passport control, all of their documents are taken away from them and they're pretty much smuggled into Rwanda, um, taken to a, a hotel where they're pretty much locked in and then human smugglers tell them, give us your money and we'll take you to Uganda. Um, and in Uganda, they realize they have no status and they're not safe and they're smuggled from there to South Sudan and then from there either to Ethiopia or to Libya. And Israel, when it gives people $3,500 and a train ticket, a, train, a plane ticket to Rwanda, it's pretty much saying, here's $3,500, you're gonna need this to pay the migrant smugglers and the human traffickers to get you wherever you wanna go. Good luck. A good friend of mine drowned in early 2016 in the Mediterranean who left voluntarily. We were in, in, in whole lot detention facility together. And after he was released in 2015, um, he spent something like a couple of months uh, in Tel Aviv. And I used to uh, meet him once in a while. And um, I didn't know that he was leaving. Uh, and so he ended up in Uganda. And then it appeared that he went through South Sudan and, and managed to cross all the way to Egypt. He managed to make it there. And then he took a, a boat to, uh, to Italy, to, but then um, with a big number of people, something like 200 or 300 people drowned in the Mediterranean. In the end, you see the, the outcomes of, of you know, sending people, to, forcing people to leave to third country Rwanda and Uganda where they remain in limbo, so people have to search for, for another alternative. This refugee never ends. So this is where African refugees in Israel stand. Starting next month, the new deportation law will take effect. We don't know how many people are actually going to be deported or what these deportations will even look like, but it leaves thousands of refugees at risk of being sent to countries that don't offer them any legal status or protection. What is the interest of, of Israel in not checking asylum requests as is sanctioned by international law? Um, the short answer is, if they actually were to check their asylum requests and do a process like they were supposed to, they know 
or they have a very strong feeling based on a lot of information and experience that the vast majority of these people would actually be refugees and they would have to give them refugee status. Then maybe the next question is, why doesn't Israel want to give them refugee status? So the official reasons that the government of Israel gives for its current policies, why isn't giving them refugee status? Why is it deporting? Why is it sending them to prison? Why is it taking away their salaries? Why is it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. This is always Benjamin Netanyahu's first response. It's his canned response. They are not refugees, they're illegal infiltrators. I don't think Benjamin Netanyahu believes that when he says that. I think he knows the majority of them are refugees, but Benjamin Netanyahu knows better than anybody else. If you repeat a lie often enough, people will start to believe it. Um, I think there are other people in the government of Israel and in the Israeli population that believe that because it's convenient to believe that. Oh, well, if they're not refugees, then we have no obligations towards them, right? And then we can politically scapegoat them. We can be afraid of them. We can oppress them and it's totally okay. Or we can be afraid of them, right? And not address those xenophobic fears that we have because, oh, they're not really refugees. So that means I don't have to deal right, either with the legal implications of what that means that these people are refugees or kind of the internal existential questions of what that means, right, as a Jew, as an Israeli, as a Jewish state. Um, the other reasons they'll give is, oh, we're a small country. We don't have the resources, um, which is just not true as I was a member of the OECD, right, the uh, developed countries of the world. Um, and Israel actually brings in migrant workers every year to do the jobs that the refugees are doing. And it would actually cost less to let these people work and pay taxes and live a normal life than the current policies of detention and coerced departure. Right, the other answer that they give is, oh, it's a Jewish state. We only have one Jewish state in the world and these people are a threat to the Jewish character of the state of Israel. Um, okay, so they're, uh, eight and a half million approximately citizens of Israel in Israel, about six point something million Jewish citizens and about 1.5 million non-Jewish citizens living in Israel, an additional 200,000 non-Jewish foreigners living in the country, foreign workers, legal and non-legal, and we're talking about 38,000 asylum seekers, right? That's less than 2% of the population of the country. They are not a demographic threat, and the border is now sealed. Last year, no new Eritreans and Sudanese are able to enter the country through the Sinai Desert because of the border fence. Um, then I'll tell you what I think the real reasons why Israel doesn't want to recognize them as refugees. Um, mostly fear. This demographic, political fear, right? This feeling that we're surrounded by enemies, we're a small country. They're just afraid of the other. I asked Mutasim what it's like to be on the receiving end of this fear that Elliot was speaking of. I'll start with the recent case. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu, when he visited South Tel Aviv uh, a couple of months ago, and he said that we will return South Tel Aviv to Israeli residents, as if the South Tel Aviv was occupied by African um, asylum seekers. And he kept, kept repeating that they're infiltrators, they're, they're a threat to our society, and, and or maybe in the past, I would say there's some races, but then they don't express it because they feel ashamed, uh, ashamed about it. But then when you've got a Knesset member comes in a big crowd and says, you know, Sudanese are cancer nobody, and, um, and others say, uh, if protecting our neighborhoods and our people are racist, then we're proud to be racist. This is just a shame. Here's Miri Regev, then Knesset member and now culture minister of Israel at an anti-refugee rally in South Tel Aviv in 2012, saying, <laughs> The Sudanese are a cancer in our body. And 
and the implications were uh, violence, people were attacked on the streets and, and people feel, you know, like they feel like it's okay to, to say all of this and stuff. And it's just, uh, it's just really sad. Um, well, I mean, listen, um, I've been experiencing racism, uh, racism um, you know, almost my entire life. And so I'm not really struck with it, but, um, but it's just a shame, um, you know, to work down in Israel, it's like a democratic, uh, the only democratic country in the Middle East, um, uh, a country that, you know, um, most of the leaders, when they go out, brag about the human rights and all of that. I go down South Tel Aviv streets or somewhere else and work with your, uh, you know, white girlfriend and immediately experience, you know, horrible things. It's just sad, you know what I'm saying? Despite the fear-mongering on the part of Israeli politicians, since the new deportation law, many Israelis have risen up to publicly defend refugees. Israeli doctors, social workers, and artists, among others, have all presented petitions against deportation. A group of Israeli pilots have stated that they will refuse to fly African refugees out of Israel, if asked. And a new group was formed, South Tel Aviv Against Deportation, organized by local residents of South Tel Aviv in solidarity with their refugee neighbors. There are also international campaigns. Elliot is at the forefront of one of them. I'm involved with an organization called Right Now Advocates for Asylum Seekers in Israel, which is a network of volunteers, mostly um, Canadian and American Jews who have spent time in Israel, and then they came back to their communities around the Jewish world, uh, and especially around North America, and were really surprised that people didn't know about this, um, and also feeling that If the international Jewish community, if specifically American and Canadian Jews knew about this, they would want to do something about this to help the refugees. And they could do something um, to influence Israel. And there are also specific ways that the uh, North American Jews and international Jews can offer to help Israel. I believe, I mean, as an American Jewish Zionist and as an Israeli citizen, that Israel has the capacity and the obligation to at least integrate the 38,000 asylum seekers that are already in the country. I think Israel can do that. But I think there's a perception in Israel that this is gadolaleno. This is too much for us. We cannot bear this burden. So I think if they hear from American and Canadian Jews, I think if they hear their friends, their brothers and sisters, their cousins, right, who know them, Right, who love them, American and Canadian Jews, calling them up and saying, okay, I see you're struggling to deal with this issue. I'm really concerned. I don't like this. How can I help? How can we help to address this differently? And there are real ways that we can help, right? I mean, we can send resources to Israel to help with refugee settlement, you know, outside of Tel Aviv. Um, we can also leverage resources that we're already sending to Israel. There's an entire infrastructure in Israel for migrant absorption and resettlement. I benefited from it, right? As someone who made Aliyah, it's called Aliyah Viklita, immigration and absorption. We have immigration centers. We have immigration counselors. We have Hebrew classes for these people. So I think American and Canadian Jews can say, we want the resources that we're paying for in Israel to help these people. And if you want more, we'll send more And I'm saying this money isn't just going to go to the asylum seekers. No, it's going to go to the Israeli society to help with the integration, to go to South Tel Aviv, to help with some of the rehabilitation that needs to happen there. And by the way, I should mention, we're actually launching today, right now is launching today, a campaign, the Let Us Help campaign, 
If you go to letushelpil.org, you'll find resources. Uh, first of all, a pledge that people can sign that say, yes, I agree, don't deport, let us help. And also a reach out through social media. We're trying to get American Canadian Jews through social media saying, hi, this is me, your American Canadian Jewish cousin and friend. Love you guys, support you guys. Um, please don't deport refugees. We were once refugees, remember that? Um, but let's work together, we can help. You know, it's interesting that um, you have gone with, uh, you've gone with African asylum seekers in Israel for all of, through all of these um, hardships. And still, you are saying, uh, and you want to organize people around uh, basically something that is pro-Israel, pro, we know we support Israel. But I am thinking, I have a totally different approach to this. I'm thinking, this is something that is not only, uh, it's not only like a, like a singular uh, problem that is, you know, Israel is great except for that. It signifies, uh, it sheds light on so many other problems in Israeli society, what you call xenophobia, and I would call racism. And I think that there is a problem in Israel which doesn't apply only to asylum seekers. It applies to all people of course, and, uh, and especially first and foremost to Palestinians. What do you think is the connection between uh, the Israeli occupation of Palestine and uh, its treatment of asylum seekers? I had a feeling you were going to ask that. Um, it's complicated. I'll first say, um, legally, they're very different situations. You know, we're talking about millions of Palestinians, and we're talking about 38,000 African asylum seekers, right? If Israel tomorrow were to give citizenship to millions of Palestinians, it would drastically change the, the nature of the state of Israel. When we're talking about these African asylum seekers, we're talking about a very different situation of people that are fleeing genocide, persecution, again, convention refugees. But I think underneath all of this, um, there are deep questions about what does it mean to be a Jewish state or what does it mean to be Israel? What kind of country do you want to be? Is it based on a set of culture and values? or is it based on uh, ethno-racial national identity, right? I can understand why a lot of Israelis disagree with me on the Palestinian issue, right? I, I will say right here, I'm an unabashed Zionist leftist. And you know, a lot of Israelis, American Jews disagree with me on my take on, on the Palestinian situation, but I can understand, it's easier for me to understand where they're coming from, why they see the Palestinians as a threat, demographically and otherwise. 38,000 African asylum seekers? What? <laughs> a threat? What are you afraid of? And, and I think for many of us activists who've been involved in this issue, some of us are also involved with the Palestinian issue, some of us are not. This is almost like a litmus test or a straw that broke the camel's back of, of the Zionist experiment. It was established by Jewish refugees. It meant to be a state that respects minority rights, respects human rights, respects civil rights, and lifts up the oppressed and the poor, and is a refuge for Jews around the world who don't have another place to go. But not only, right? Not only that, not just an ethno-national state. It's, it's some ways it's connected, in some ways it's not connected to the Palestinian issue. But I think for many of us involved in the struggle, um, many of us Zionists involved in the struggle, this is kind of the test, right? This is a test for us and our Zionism, and this is a test for Israel. 
Israel is now turning 70. And for 70 years, we've brought in millions of Jewish refugees from all over the world. And now for the first time in the history, in 2000 years that we have some kind of Jewish sovereignty and we have a political body that is able to protect others, we have non-Jews seeking asylum in the Jewish state, victims of Holocaust, and I will use that word. Uh, there's a Holocaust happening in Darfur, right? And they are seeking asylum with us. We are being tested. We are missing an opportunity to demonstrate that we have a moral reason for existence as a Jewish state. And we are failing. We are failing this test. If Israel sends off my Eritrean and Sudanese friends to Africa, first of all, I don't know if, if I haven't done everything in my power as a human being and as a Jew to stop it, I don't know if I'll be able to live with myself. And I don't know if I'll be able to live in the state of Israel. The way that um, today we're being treated in Israel is just, um, you know, it's completely contrary to what um, Jewish communities around the world were advocating for. I know Israel can do a lot better as a country that, you know, based on refugees and, and to treat people as uh, infiltrators and, and, and cancer or but a threat to our society. Um, and so that's just, uh, it just simply does not befit, of course, any other country, any other nation, and specifically Israel. When we recorded our interviews with Elliot and Mutasim, 11 African asylum seekers had been given refugee status in Israel. Since then, Israel granted two more cases. Now there are 13 out of 35,000. Unsettled is produced by Emily Bell, Yoshi Fields, Max Friedman, Ilana Levinson and me. This episode was edited by Ilana Levinson. Please check out our website, unsettledpod.com, for the full transcript of this episode. Original Unsettled theme music by Nat Rosenzweig. Special thanks to Yaela Ravine, Liat Freund for letting us use the recording of the refugee protest, and Poddington Bear for the music. Also thanks to Han Chang for all your help. Thanks again for all your donations to our fundraising campaign last month. If you'd like to continue supporting Unsettled, please consider becoming a monthly sustainer through Patreon. Remember to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of Unsettled.